0: I have preached six sermons on the subject of marriage. Two and a half were spent addressing the women and the importance of learning to submit and serve a man because that is your purpose in this world. The next two and a half messages were spent addressing the men, teaching and admonishing you men the importance of loving, nourishing, and cherishing your wives. Last Sunday evening was the sixth message in which I covered two rules or recommendations for marriage. And that is, first of all, that women guard against making their children more important than their husbands. It's a very easy trap to fall into and a very dangerous one. God did not create women to be mothers. God created women to be wives. To be a mother is a secondary responsibility of the woman. It's a temporary relationship. You're only going to have those children 15 to 20 years. You're going to have your husband, God, blessing you for many years longer than that. The second rule I covered last Sunday evening was that men not have a mistress on the side as so many of us have been prone to do in the form of our careers or a job or our master's It is so easy for men to become so involved in their jobs, finding so much gratification and satisfaction there that they neglect their wives. And we dealt at length with that, and I tried to make it as practical as I possibly could. I could make the second part of that very practical since I have been very guilty of it in the past in my own life. This evening I want to address several, if we get to them, of myths regarding marriage. Several myths. Those are fables. Those are fairy tales. Those are errors associated with people's thinking about the subject of marriage. Let me give you some illustrations of myth number one before I state it plainly. Myth number one, and I briefly alluded to it this morning in this morning's sermon, A couple feels that their marriage is in trouble, so they come to their pastor or they go to a marriage counselor. I hope they don't. But if they do, they walk in and they sit down before that counselor and he says, what's the problem here? And they both say, we just don't love each other anymore. Now, if there's anyone in this room that is so bold as to say you've never had that thought go through your mind You can take a four letter word from me right now. You're a liar. There are times in every relationship between men where you lack and lose the feelings of love expressed by that statement. We just don't love each other anymore. I just don't love her anymore. I just don't love him anymore thereby excusing their marriage falling apart or giving a reason for it falling apart as love has just disappeared from their relationship. Let me give some more statements that could be made. The woman might say, I never really loved him when we got married. He was there, we got married, and I never really did love him. She may say, I just don't feel right about him anymore. He may say, I don't have any feelings for her like I used to. She may say, I just don't respect him like I should. He may say, I still have strong feelings for another woman. They may say, the old fire is just not there anymore. He may say, she has hurt me so much I cannot love her. He may say or she may say, I still love so-and-so from their past. All of those illustrative statements I've just made one, some, or all will apply to every marriage represented in this room at some time or another. Myth number one, feelings, love, and respect are prerequisites to marriage. Feelings, love, and respect are prerequisites to marriage. Myth number one is the false delusion of our generation primarily that romantic love is necessary for a marriage to work. And following that is the fact that if you don't have romantic love in your marriage, your marriage is in trouble and you can't get it. That if if romantic love has left your relationship, you can't get it back unless Cupid happens to find your door. This popular myth is primarily an American myth. The rest of the world doesn't know very much about this myth because they don't operate the way we do in America. In the Bible, marriages were often, usually... Arranged by the parents. The parents didn't sit down and ask where the great feelings were. Parents arranged marriages for a variety of reasons. Usually for whether that man was going to take good care of, the, of his daughter. Or whether that man's father had already struck a bargain for his daughter sometime earlier. It was the practice among the Jews that we read about in the scriptures that if a girl reached the age of 12 and a half years and was not married, she had passed the flower of her age. Someone blew it in getting her married. Now, I know that sounds ridiculous, and it's a joke in 20th century America, because 20-year-old women today aren't as capable, nor as responsible, nor as mature as a 12-year-old 3,000 years ago. Parents arranged me marriages and they weren't always worrying about feelings they weren't always asking about romantic love they weren't always asking about respect those marriages were arranged based on the parents judgment as to what two parties would work together well there's more there's a lot of scriptures on this particular point but let's look at just a couple of them let's look at Genesis chapter 24 Genesis chapter 24, oh, have you ever said to yourself, why don't I love my wife like I used to? Why don't I have the feelings for him like I used to? Have any of you thought I've never really loved my husband like I should? I've never had those strong feelings that other women seem to have. Any of you men ever say to yourself, why do I feel so strongly about someone else that I'm not married to? Genesis chapter 24 is the story of Abraham getting a wife for his son Isaac. Isaac is 40 years old in this case. Verse 2, And Abraham said unto his eldest servant of his house, that ruled over all that he had, Put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh. And I will make thee swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell. But thou shalt go unto my country and to my kindred, and take a wife unto my son Isaac. And you know the rest of that 24th chapter, how that servant went. God led him, and that servant found a woman for Isaac. And Isaac and Rebekah were married. When they met each other, they didn't sit down and talk about how much they loved each other. They didn't know each other. They got married. Look at Genesis chapter 21 and verse 21. This is the young man Ishmael, Abraham's other son. And he dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took him a wife out of the land of Egypt. Why is it that young people, young people, I mean 40 years old, why did they understand back then that a parent would have much more wisdom in choosing a marital partner than the child ever would. It was understood. Ishmael let his mother choose his wife out of Egypt. You know, you went and you paid the dowry to the girl's father and you took the woman, you put them together. There wasn't such a thing as divorce. Look at Exodus chapter 22. Exodus chapter 22. Let's hear what the Word of God has to say on ethics. What if, let's be practical, the Bible is, one of our young ladies was to get into a relationship with one of our young men and the young lady came up pregnant. What is the Bible solution? Is it abortion? Is it adoption? It's marriage. That is a sin not punished by death because it's a sin that can be corrected. If you committed adultery in the Bible or you violated even the engagement period, it was death, it was all over because you could not undo that. I mean, once you've messed with a man's wife, how do you undo that? But when you seduce a young girl and get her pregnant, you can correct that by marrying her and living with her the rest of your life and never having the option of putting her away like other men did sexual infidelity because you had humbled her the point I want to make is that God had a rule and it's stated in other places in the Old Testament that if a girl came up pregnant even by rape even by rape it was marriage there's a Bible solution to things if a young man force a young girl and and she's found pregnant it was marriage. Exodus chapter 22. Look at verse 16. And if a man entice... This is not rape. This is voluntary coercion. And if a man entice a maid that is not betrothed and lie with her, he shall surely endow her to be his wife. He'll pay the dowry and make her his wife. If her father utterly refused to give her unto him... He shall pay money according to the dowry of virgins. The father was made whole anyway. He lost a valuable possession. That's a virgin daughter. But the young man had to pay the virgin's dowry anyway, even if the father refused the marriage. Now let's think about that situation, how much, how strongly that speaks of what I'm talking about. God says that when two people have come together outside of marriage, there is a cure, a solution to make that situation right. It's marriage. Tommy Motorcycle and Susie Hagler are in love. And Tommy Motorcycle seduces Susie. And they commit fornication. They love each other, you know, as they would surely tell us. They love each other. They've now committed fornication. God's order for that event is for them to be put together. And Tommy and Susie come and meet with Bob Hagler. And they say, we've made a mistake, we've slept together outside of marriage, Susie's pregnant, we want to get married, it's God's way. Grinning inside, they've done it now. you know what authority you have? Get lost, buddy. Hit the street, but before you leave, where's my $5,000 check? You know what the point is? The authority of a father who didn't care about feelings. So what if Tommy told Susie that he loved her? That was irrelevant. If the father didn't think he was a fit man for a husband, then it was too bad. Susie had been ruined, as far as God was concerned, and he'd have to make do. But he wasn't going to ship her off with some man not fit to be her husband. That is the incredible authority God gave fathers. And the point that I'm trying to make is this, feelings and even an act of sin that God normally corrected by marriage could be undone by the Father. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm sure some will argue, well, that was in the days of the Old (coughs) Testament when men lived in caves and chased rabbits with clubs. That was Neanderthal, prehistoric times. They weren't prehistoric back then. They were very civilized. They had a far better society than we have today. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 36. The Apostle Paul writes to New Testament Christians, If any man think that he behaveth himself uncomely toward his virgin, if she pass the flower of her age and need so require, let him do what he will. He sinneth not, let them marry. Where is the choice of marriage? Whose will is involved in verse 36? His will. Nevertheless, he that standeth steadfast in his heart, not her in her heart, but he in his heart, having no necessity, but hath power over his own will, and hath so decreed in his heart that he will keep his virgin, doeth well. So then he that giveth her in marriage doeth well, but he that giveth her not in marriage doeth better. That's because of the circumstances at Corinth. I mean, that isn't always true. Usually, it is better to give her in marriage. At Corinth, for the present distress of verse 26, Paul was warning against marriage because of the bondage and problems that it would bring. These verses are to show that in the Bible, if we're going to look at the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, and I've left out a number of references, parents made decisions about who was fit for who. And it wasn't based on feelings or romantic love. It was based on parental wisdom and judgment. Looking at two young people, whether they were qualified to be a good husband and wife. Most of the world's population still practices that to some degree. Out of the five billion people in this planet, four, three, four billion still practice the same system of putting a man and a woman together in marriage by parental design. American girls and American families promote girls choosing their husbands by infatuation. Now, I want to ask you a question. Let's look at the record. Let's just take a sneak at the record. You go back to a time when men were told, you better take certain care of her. And where girls were told, you better obey and serve him. And they were just thrown together. Boom. Practical relationship. You're going to be my husband for the rest of my life. I'm going to bear you children. You're going to provide food, clothing, and the sexual duty of marriage to me. How many divorces occurred back in those days, and how many occur in the nations of this world that still practice parental, parental putting together of a marriage? Very little divorce. Now let's go to America. American girls, why they, they date... And they finally pick one they say they love, and they get married. Oh, they feel so good about it. And what do we have in America? Secure marriages or marriages falling apart right and left? Because feelings won't do a thing for you when it comes to the long haul of holding a marriage together. Consider the, quote, perfect family, unquote, of America today. Susie dates many boys. Well, beginning at about 15 or 16 she's going out with Tommy one week well maybe it's Tommy and Frank and Joe all on the same weekend she's dating lots of guys and oh mommy's so proud because mommy's living out her fantasies through little Susie little Susie's dating all these guys week after week and finally she comes home you know her daddy's sitting in the chair with a newspaper in front of his face and he finally pulls it down and Susie says I love Tommy And she reaches down and kisses him on the forehead and, oh, daddy feels so good because Susie finally gave him some honor. And he pulls out his checkbook and writes his $10,000 check to make sure that Susie has a fine wedding to her Tommy. And they go off and live happily ever after and it's all based on the infatuated feelings of a young, innocent, silly, as the Bible would call her, young woman. Now what kind of a marriage record do we have in America today? Is marriage treated soberly, seriously, as a lifelong commitment, or is it just a frivolous little relationship that we can enter into frivolously and we can just as quickly and just as frivolously end through a divorce? All based on feelings. If Daddy ever said to Susie, Why do you want to marry Tommy? Because I love him. Bless her heart. She loves him. What does she mean when she says that? She's going to give me what I, he's going to give me what I want. She's really saying I lust after him. What type of criteria has she applied against Tommy? And even if she did, what sense of judgment does an unmarried woman have about marriage? The record speaks for itself so plainly a blind man can see it. Voluntary romantic love does not make strong marriages. Yet, to most people, what I'm saying tonight is rank heresy and gross stupidity. Because men don't fear God any longer, because they're so ignorant of Scripture, because there's little commitment to duty, to talk about things being done the way they were in the Bible is almost impossible because of this infantile generation. It's almost impossible to look at how things were done, the Word of God, and even try to think of it happening nowadays because no fear of God, no knowledge of Scripture, and no commitment to duties. There's no sense of responsibility. Listen, a 12-year-old girl in Bible times had already worked for six years. She knew what hard labor was about. She knew what menial tasks were all about. She'd clean clothes by scrubbing them between two rocks. She'd baked the bread instead of floating into the pantry on the way home and buying a couple loaves. She'd baked it from scratch. She knew what hard labor was and she knew what life was going to be when she got married. Hard labor. You know, I'm, I'm guilty right now of, quote, extreme, unquote, preaching. I'm preaching an extreme view on marriage. I'm going to preach it for two reasons. One, I'm going to present God's emphasis. God couldn't care less about two people's feelings because feelings don't make a marriage. Try to find me a verse in Scripture that tells us that feelings ought to exist before you get married and that if you don't have the feelings, you can quit your marriage. I'm going to teach God's emphasis and the second thing I'm going to do is I'm going to condemn the worldly excess we have. So I'm coming from over here. One, because God's Word's over here And the second reason is this world's over here. So I'm going to correct the excess. And I'm going to try to establish God's emphasis. What is romantic love? What people call love today is basically just lust a strong desire for something that will satisfy them. Have you ever had those feelings of love? I've had them. I've had them for motorcycles, I've had them for guns. I've had them for houses. I've had them for a lot of women. God having mercy on my wretched soul. And any man here who's a man knows exactly what I'm talking about. Those feelings will do nothing but get you into trouble. It's called lust. But it sure does feel good, doesn't it? Feelings. Love. It's lust. It's desire for something that will satisfy you. Well, I loved my job. Should I have married it? Look at Genesis chapter 25. Pastor, we just don't love each other anymore, and we think we ought to end our marriage. How many times has that been stated in the last 40 years in this nation? Either to a counselor or to each other where they sit down, we've agreed that... Have you ever heard a couple explain why they got divorced? We just don't love each other anymore. That's incredible. We just don't love each other anymore. And so they end their marriage. You know, the kids are now living in a divided home, and the whole system that God ordained has fallen down because the feelings disappeared. There are feelings described in the Bible between men and women. Look at Genesis chapter 29, verses, beginning at verse 15. And Laban said unto Jacob, Because thou art my brother, shouldest thou therefore serve me for naught? Tell me, what shall thy wages be? And Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah was tender-eyed, but Rachel was beautiful and well-favored. And Jacob loved Rachel and said, I will serve thee seven years for Rachel, thy younger daughter. And Laban said, It is better that I give her to thee than that I should give her to another man. Abide with me. And Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed unto him but a few days for the love he had to her. That's quite a dowry, isn't it? You want to take seven times gross? That's quite a dowry. I this is, it just hit me here as I was reading this. Jacob understood approximately how long he'd have to work for Rachel. I mean, he didn't overestimate it because he desperately wanted her. Seven years was what he had to work for Rachel. But verse 20 is what I want you to look at. Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed unto him but a few days for the love he had to her. What kind of love drives a man to work seven years? A strong attraction and desire with great feelings for Rachel. So the Bible isn't saying there are no feelings, nor does it condemn feelings. Feelings have their proper place. But we've got to keep priorities lined up. Where do feelings fit into a marriage? Now look at Judges chapter 14. Judges 14. Why Jacob's love for Rachel caused him to work seven years for that woman. They seemed only a few days he wanted her so badly. Judges chapter 14. Here's the word love, used again in the Word of God. Look at verses 1 through 3. And Samson went down to Timnath and saw a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. And he came up and told his father and his mother and said, I have seen a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore, get her for me to wife. Then his father and his mother said unto him, Is there never a woman among the daughters of thy brethren or among all my people that thou goest to take a wife of the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said unto his father, Get her for me, for she pleaseth me well. Oh, she really made him feel good. He was strongly in love with this girl of Timnath. And he gets himself in trouble, and he's in trouble the rest of his life because of women. Because he puts his feelings and his affection, his desires, and his pleasure first. Scriptural love is active. We are operating when we love scripturally under our own control love is action love is not something that we receive passively and it's out of our control where it can come and go that isn't the bible love that's important to a marriage but that is how feelings operate feelings will come and feelings will go feelings will come and feelings will go romantic love comes and it wanes it waxes strong and it disappears But a marriage can't disappear. You need to keep loving your wife and keep loving your husband by doing the things toward them God has commanded, whether you feel like it or not. And you are in control. This idea of I fell in love, that means somebody knocked you over and you fell into something. What in the world are you talking about? Love in the Bible is something you control. You do it or you don't do it. You don't fall into it. Nobody falls into righteousness. And love is a righteous act on the part of men. Godly love is work. It requires a price because it requires an investment in learning how to do it, in effort at doing it, in the time to let it take its effect, and the sacrifice necessary to love properly. All those things are thing you, things you do. We need to learn how to love. Old women are supposed to teach young women Let me say older women are to teach the younger women to love their husbands. It's something that is taught. They don't just get in a prayer group and pray, I hope that we all fall in love this next week toward our husbands. It's something that is taught because it's work. You know, I've run into trouble already in my short ministry with someone saying you can't teach love. I hope all of you can remember how pitiful, how ignorant. You can't teach love. Everyone knows how to love his wife. You don't need to teach them that. Remember that? I've listened to tripe like that and I'm so sick it makes me gag. The hardest thing in the world to do that I tried to establish this morning is to love properly. It is hard work. God does not condemn feelings. God does not condemn romantic love. But He condemns it when it is in the wrong place in your relationship with others. He condemns you being subject to those feelings and not controlling those feelings. Bowels of affection is how the Bible would describe the term we're going after are not wrong. Look at Genesis chapter 43. Genesis chapter 43. Thanks be to God He gave us bowels that can turn upside down when we feel good about something because it's a fantastic feeling, isn't it? David Taylor told me this morning that his son used to have a little saying that contained a great deal of wisdom when Dave used to scare him. Kevin used to say back to his father, you hurt my stomach. You know, when someone scares you, and you you go into that moment of terror and fright, where does it grip you? In your bowels. I could say more on that subject, but you know what happens when people get very frightened? As Belshazzar did in a palace one day. It affects you right here, in your bowels, literally. I mean, God's Word is not crazy. Those figures of speech sometimes are more literal than we want to admit. But it's very literal. The feeling in the pit of your stomach when he held my hand at the movie. You know, you've heard tripe like that for so long. It's good, but it's not the basis for a marriage. It's not the basis for pursuing a relationship. There's things far above that in God's priority. But let's look at some examples of bowels. Genesis chapter 43 and verse 30. Josh, Joseph, is king of Egypt, and his brothers are before him, and Benjamin is with them. Verse 30, And Joseph made haste, for his bowels did yearn upon his brother, and he sought where to weep, and he entered into his chamber and wept there. He was bawling because of what his bowels were doing to him with feeling for his little brother Benjamin. A scriptural example. Joseph isn't condemned for it because Joseph didn't do anything as a result of those feelings, that was wrong. The feelings were great. I mean, if you read a story like Genesis 43, which you're going to do in about two and a half weeks if you're reading through your Bible, it's a great story. Fantastic story to think of the emotion. Hollywood can't come up with real emotion. You want to talk about emotion? When those brothers realize who's sitting on the throne of Egypt. That'd be a scene no movies ever matched. For a touching moment. Look at 1 Kings chapter 3. First Kings chapter 3. A wise man will understand and use bowels. 1 Kings chapter 3. King Solomon is proving his wisdom that God gave him. He has two harlots before him. One child is dead. One is yet alive. They're both claiming to be the mother of the living child. He needs to find out who is the true mother. What does he rely on? bowels. First Kings three 26. Let's get verse 25. We can't miss that. And the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. What wisdom. Then spake the woman whose the living child was under the king, for her bowels yearned upon her son. And she said, "O my Lord, give her the living child and in no wise slay it. But the other said, let it be neither mine nor thine, but divide it. What woman is going to say, cut my kid in half so I can take home half of it? Isn't that slick? God gave us the rest of 1 Kings 3, the first part's the vision that Solomon had that God said, I'm going to give you wisdom. The second half is what kind of wisdom he had. But notice what he appealed to. The natural bowels that a mother has for her children. Are those bowels that a mother has for her children good? Good. Yes, they are. Do they drive that mother to do unheard of things many times for their children? Yes. Can those feelings lead a woman astray so that she sins against God in being a good mother? Definitely. Withhold not the rod. What are mothers prone to do? Withhold the rod because of their bowels. They don't like to hear their child crying. So the feelings can lead them into sin or the feelings can propel them into righteousness. That is the whole issue. What do we have to do with feelings? Keep them under lock and key and place put them in their proper place. Look at Song of Solomon, chapter 5. Solomon's Song, chapter 5. it's amazing you know every generation thanks we've stumbled on something new our parents our grandparents they didn't know anything about feelings or love like we do let's go back three thousand years and see if the song of solomon can describe anything that happened to young people today (coughs) song of solomon chapter five and verse four this is the woman speaking my beloved put in his hand by the hole of the door she was in her room She saw her beloved sticking his hand in by the door to open that door, and my bowels were moved for him. I mean, this is a marriage relationship between a man and his wife, and she's describing the effect, simply the sight of his hand entering her room, brought to him, brought to her. Bowels. And if you were to read the rest of the Song of Solomon, you'd find out that those bowels of feeling she had motivated her to godly conduct toward her husband. From beginning to end. She's one wild woman. The world can't find a wilder woman than is found in the Song of Solomon. And God put that book there for women to know how they ought to treat their husbands. Jeremiah, let's not worry with Jeremiah 31. Bowels of affection are not evil. They have their place. But we need to control them. Since you're at the Song of Solomon, look at chapter 1 and find further reference to love as these feelings. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. What kind of love is she talking about? Definitely romantic, physical expressions of love. Verse 3, because of the savour of thy good ointments... Thy name is as ointment poured forth. Therefore do the virgins love thee. A lot of women loved Solomon. Draw me. We will run after thee. The king hath brought me into his chambers. We will be glad and rejoice in thee. We will remember thy love more than wine. The upright love thee. Solomon attracted and created feelings for himself. And they're described here. And they're described throughout this entire book. They have their place. In the New Testament, the Apostle goes so far, and we looked at a passage this morning, where he commands us to put on bowels, to have feelings, one for another. He tells us in a place, set your affection on things above. That is, your feelings can be directed. Now, we don't hear much about that in our generation. It's the feelings overtake you, and they're just in one direction. And if the feelings are in that direction, then that must be the one for you. Do you love her? Yes. Does he love you? Yes. Well, then, you two must have been made for each other. Listen, you bring any good-looking woman down the street and have her climb on behind any decent-looking guy on on Tommy's motorcycle and ride down the street and around the block, and if she squeezes him enough, he'll think he loves her. And if he's cool enough, she'll think she loves him. And it proves nothing. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 13. Feelings can get you in trouble. 2 Samuel 13, they can be very deceptive and get you in trouble, if you'll be honest about them. This is the story of Amnon and Tamar, David's son who committed incest with his sister. Verse 1 tells us that Absalom... The son of David had a fair sister whose name was Tamar, and Amnon the son of David loved her. They were half brother and sister. And Amnon was so vexed that he fell sick for his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And Amnon thought it hard for him to do anything to her. But now notice the word of verse 1. He fell sick of what? Love. Oh, he loved her so much. He loved her so much he fell sick. Then he committed fornication and incest with her. And we read in verse 15. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred wherewith he hated her was greater than the love wherewith he had loved her. And Amnon said unto her, Arise, be gone, get out of here. Now that's a rather quick change. Here's a guy who was so much in love he was sick but he ended up hating her more than he loved her a few moments later. And anybody that's been around and anybody that's ever talked to those who've had experiences similar to this know how true it is. Feelings are very deceptive and they can swing the gambit in moments. The heart of man is not to be trusted. The Bible says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The Bible says every way of a man is right in his own mind. Your feelings will always be telling you this is it. This is the real thing. This is great. This is good. Don't you love it? And they're deceiving you. Those feelings can be and usually are very deceiving. And you've got to guard against them. So for all those couples that ever think, but I just don't love her anymore, those feelings are deceiving you. That's no basis for you ending your marriage. That's no basis for you not putting out in your marriage like you should have. If you ever say to yourself, why do I still have such strong feelings for so-and-so, someone from your past, somebody else's wife, whatever the case might be, those feelings are deceiving you, and they've got to be crushed. Even if it means cutting off your exposure to that relationship, the Savior said, if you're tempted to lust after another woman, pluck out your eye, cut off your right hand to save yourself from that evil opportunity. The feelings may be great, but they often lead to wrong action. I mentioned women. Does that mother's bowels yearning for her children cause her to be a good mother? She'll arise in the middle of the night to feed that baby when it briefly cries. But it's the same feeling that will cause her to withhold the rod when it comes to correction, just as it caused David. Remember in 1 Kings chapter 1 and verse 6, where it said that David, regarding Adonijah, his son had never said to his son what are you doing son now why didn't he didn't want to spoil his fun there's too strong of a desire in us as parents to want to let our children have their way have their pleasure enjoy life we don't like cramping their style it isn't exciting to do that I hate doing it don't you cramping their style I have bowels that want to let them do what they want, but those bowels have to be crushed if I'm going to be a good father. Strong attraction for another is great. If you have an attraction for your wife or your husband that's just lighting your fire and turning your bowels upside down every day of the week, great. I'm glad for you. Make sure it results in proper action toward that party. If you've got feelings like that for anyone else, crush them and if you don't have feelings like that for your wife we've got to get them requires those strong romantic feelings of love to have a good marriage that's the first error you don't need those feelings the world's never relied on those feelings most marriages that have been made in the history of this world didn't have the feelings and the marriages held together and didn't have divorce like they have in america you see that maybe they're not as happy as if they had had the feelings well great That's icing on the cake, but it's no basis for a marriage. The love required in marriage is sacrificial giving. And good feelings don't always lead you to sacrificially give. Good feelings will often cause you to do things simply for your own gratification. Because that's what gives you the good feeling. Love that makes marriages is self-initiated giving that has to precede feeling. If you don't have feeling for your husband or your wife, you still have to do it. You have to submit whether you have feelings for him or not. You need to love and cherish and nourish her and not be bitter against her whether you have feelings or not. Love in Scripture is something commanded regardless of feeling. It's action. Bible love is action. And it must precede feelings. Truth determines action. And action must determine feelings. And if we ever get those three things out of order, we are in trouble in our marriages and with our young people. Truth determines action. How do you know how you ought to treat your wife? The Bible tells me so. What kind of feelings should you have towards your wife or toward any other woman? The feelings that result from proper action. Any other order will defeat marriage or your relationship with other men and women. Most of what God requires in marriage won't get done if you're relying on feelings because most of what God requires in marriage means crushing your feelings to consider the other party and to do for them what you don't really feel like doing. The second great error that's made with this myth is that such feelings cannot be created. And if you're in a marriage... Where the feelings of love and the romantic love have waned or they've disappeared, you're stuck with a hopeless case the rest of your life where you'll never be able to get those feelings back. That is another error. The Bible tells us that they can be controlled. And when a couple comes and says, we just don't love each other anymore, they violate the first error by thinking that has anything to do with their marriage. So what? So what if you don't love each other anymore? Love him anyway. Love her anyway. That's the simple advice. Do what God says. What the Word of God says, do it. And let the feelings come. doesn't matter if they don't love each other anymore. What they're talking about is feelings. It's totally irrelevant to the situation. God's already told them how they're to act toward one another. And if they'll act properly toward one another, the feelings will come. I gave you a verse this morning, Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If you don't have love in your marriage, I can make it this simple. Any man in here who doesn't love his wife with those strong feelings hasn't made his wife his treasure. Any woman in here who doesn't love her husband so that she has those feelings toward him hasn't made him her treasure i don't care if you work hard around the house i'm talking about making him your treasure and doing what i spent two and a half sermons describing those of you women who tried that found that there was a rush of feeling involved with doing that that some of you hadn't experienced in a long while proper action of making a treasure out of something will bring the feelings Ever had an old car your dad gave you, beat-up, ugly thing, you hated it, he brought it home and said, here's your first car, son. Oh, please, Dad. Then you put new tires on the car. That helped. Some new tires all the way around, new rubber, looked like a different car. Still ugly, but it looked better. Then you put a new carburetor on it, four-barrel instead of that little two-barrel. And know you got some better performance out of it and you liked it a whole lot better because now you could burn the rubber. And then you got a new paint job on that car. Now you can wax it and polish it and take it to the car wash and everyone can see you in your car. Guess what? Did you love your car? You loved that car. How? Why? You invested time, you invested money and effort into that car, and now you loved it. And you know, I've I've seen got, <laughs> I've seen and known guys who did that with cars and they fell in love with those things they could hardly sell them because they had invested time and effort into their cars and we do that with a lot of things we do that with jobs the first time you get a job and you're frustrated the first six weeks you're frustrated the first six months things aren't going just the way you'd planned but the more you work at it and the better you try to please your master and you get used to what's going on there and you take courses To prepare yourself better for that job, you might end up with that job being your mistress. Because you'll love it. Because where your treasure is, your heart will follow. And what is the heart in Scripture? The seat of affections. It's the place where your affections flow from. Husbands and wives, if you don't love your spouse the way you once did, the way you should, the way you'd like to, you haven't made them your treasure like you should have. Look at Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs chapter 5. God doesn't leave us hanging. He created those feelings. Those feelings are great when they're expressed toward proper objects. And God tells us we're in control of them. Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 19, speaking to men about their wives. Let her be as the loving hind in pleasant roe; Let her breast satisfy thee at all times, and be thou ravished always with her love. There are three imperative verb clauses in that verse. An imperative verb means, you know, don't you, Heather? An imperative verb means, this is something you do. It's a command. Let her be as the loving hind in pleasant row. Let her breast satisfy thee at all times, and be thou ravished always with her love. That's a command. Do you know what the word ravished means? Now, it's used several other times in the Bible. When it speaks of women, it means rape. To absolutely overcome... The Bible uses it many times that way. When foreign nations would come in and God promised they're going to ravish the women of Israel, it's to absolutely overcome them. But when it's used regarding men and their feelings, it's to be totally out of control, to be lost, to be ecstatic. The dictionary describes it as to be transported with the strength of some feeling, to carry away with rapture, to fill with ecstasy or delight, to entrance a man. Keeping your finger here at Proverbs 5, look at Song of Solomon, chapter 4. Song of Solomon, chapter 4. Ravish is the strongest term you can raise for feelings. And guess what? God says, have them. Be thou ravished always with her love. Let your wife and her actions, her person, her body, whatever you want to think about, let it ravish your attention. Let it control you. Let it carry you away. Have those feelings toward her. Solomon did. Look at Song of Solomon, chapter 4, and verse 9. He describes her whole body here in this chapter, but in verse 9, he says, Thou hast ravished my heart, my sister. My spouse, thou hast ravished my heart with one of thine eyes, with one chain of thy neck. Why, he's just talking about a little bit about her. But when she looked at Solomon, he couldn't handle it. I mean, one eye was too much for him. He was ravished, carried away with enthusiasm and ecstasy at the attention she gave him. And do you know what God said in Proverbs 5, 19? Be thou ravished always with her love. It is a command. God wouldn't command something we can't handle. You make your wife your treasure. You say, my treasure needs some polishing. Send her to the spa. Make her your treasure. Be thou ravished always with her love. You can do it. How many men have sat down, friends, pastors, counselors, and heard couples say, we just don't love each other anymore, we think it's time we ended it. They're talking about feelings. Feelings aren't essential for that marriage to go on. That marriage can go on if both parties are committed to proper action. And the second error is that most parties who get into that situation feel that they'll never be able to get the feelings back. And if they'll behave properly toward each other, the feelings will come back. Can some of you testify to that? Anybody who tries to practice the Bible will be able to testify to that. And I wish to God, and I pray to God, that we'll have a congregation open enough, realistic enough, and friendly enough that we'll share it with one another as we have had those experiences and encourage those who might be discouraged about their marriage because those feelings have waned. You make a wife out of your treasure, men, and you'll love her. And if you've got feelings toward another woman, you confess those feelings to God and take away the opportunity for exposure to those feelings and get rid of them. They're worthless. Never, never even think for one vain moment that I should have married that person. I'd be happier. You're already married, and that thought is irrelevant and vain. Feelings will deceive you. Fathers, I hope you remember some of this when your daughter comes to you and tells you about how much she loves Tommy because he's got a new Harley. And I hope as we have occasion to help one another and we see marriages that have slipped in that way that we can encourage people to get back, we can encourage men and women to get back those feelings. It can happen between children and parents, parents and their children. You invest in your treasure And you'll love it God will give you the feelings To accompany your obedience What a fantastic deal God's made for his children I love those bowels Boy I can remember one time When my son David was about three years old And he was running across the floor And fell and gashed his head wide open Right in his forehead Blood was spraying straight out I thought maybe I had lost my first and only son At that point in time I remember what bowels yearning felt like It was a good feeling I mean, it hurt, but it was a great, I'd have done anything for that boy. Those feelings are good. We want to keep them. We want to maximize them. And we especially need them in marriages. All those questions I began with or those statements I began with when I started this point, aren't those true? We just don't love each other anymore. I still love so-and-so. I don't have feelings for him like I used to. I don't respect him anymore. God doesn't really care. He says, get busy doing what I've said to do towards your spouse, and I'll give you the feelings. Not a bad arrangement. Myth number two is very similar. Myth number two, and I want to deal with it this evening because it's so closely related. What do most, merit, what do most divorce decrees state today? So-and-so and so-and-so have received a divorce by the state of South Carolina on the grounds of being incompatible precious incompatible let me take incompatibility and grind on it for a while i recently i recently saw a book entitled i didn't read it but it had the title incompatibility colon grounds for a great marriage amen Compatibility has become the number one item of discussion in marriage and divorce today. Well, they're getting divorced because they're incompatible. Compatibility means we get along together well. We complement each other well. We fit together well. Our temperaments, dispositions, age, upbringing, economic background, education. You know, the taste, what kind of ice cream we like. We like anchovies on our pizzas. We're compatible. And when those things disappear or they find out that they never existed, then they want to get a marriage because they're no longer compatible. It's the number one grounds for divorce. Incompatibility. You know, the practical reality of the whole point is, how many people marry for compatibility anyway? You can answer it any way you want. I'll tell you, no one does. No one marries for compatibility because it's impossible. It's practically impossible. Because the major issues of a marriage... Or you need compatibility, no one knows until they're married. You want to think about some of the basic issues of marriage? The sexual relationship of marriage, what do you know about it? Until you get married, how do you know you're going to be compatible? The world's got an answer for that, don't they? They live together for a year or two to see if we're compatible sexually. It's impossible to marry on compatibility unless you want to measure compatibility by anchovies on your pizza. The major issues of marriage, submitting to a man who's being obnoxious. Most men aren't very obnoxious before they get married. They know they better not be or they'll be looking for a new one. How do you know until you get married? Compatibility compatibility requires intimate knowledge of a person. Intimate knowledge of a person. And it requires time for proving a person. Guess what? Dating doesn't provide either of those. Dating, everyone's always on their best behavior for a short period of time. Oh, she looks so pretty. We're compatible. She's beautiful and I'm handsome. Wait till they wake up on their honeymoon. Wait till she's had the flu. Wait till she's got two kids running her ragged. How compatible will they be? <coughs> Divorced on the grounds of incompatibility. What grounds does the Bible give? Adultery and desertion. Death isn't divorce, but death does free a person from marriage. Adultery and desertion. God doesn't have much to say about compatibility. In fact, he doesn't have anything to say about compatibility. It is impossible for sinners to be compatible in any meaningful way. It is, it, it is patently impossible for two sinners to be compatible in any meaningful way. I don't have time to give you the ten references proving this point. Let me just remind you of what we covered this morning when I covered that love... Is the greatest grace because by nature we are all hateful and hating one another. By nature we are the opposite of compatible with anyone because by nature we are grossly and unreasonably selfish and proud. Now you give me two people that by nature are grossly and unreasonably selfish and proud and tell me how in the world can they be compatible? You say, but I've seen worldlings get along well in their marriages. Oh, sure. Why do you think a husband will treat his wife in certain ways? To get certain things out of her because he's selfish and proud. Why do you think the wife will knuckle sometimes? To get certain things out of her husband. It becomes a political game. They're not compatible. By nature, we are not compatible. We're haters. To become lovers takes the grace of God. I'm talking about in any meaningful way. Compatibility is something we have to work at the rest of our lives. Compatibility is work. How do two people get married and become compatible but by learning to adjust to each other? And the only way that two people will adjust to each other in a meaningful way is by having an authority higher than both of them outside the marriage requiring both of them to make the necessary adjustments and that will result in compatibility. You can't find two people on this planet that are compatible and will have a good marriage by nature because marriage to be good requires work and the adjustment that God requires. It won't happen naturally. Compatibility isn't basic to marriage. God never addresses it one time, not, one, not even a loose hint at finding someone compatible for marriage. The Bible says favor is deceitful. Do you know what favor is? Pretended compatibility. Favor. Doing the things the other party wants on a pretense. Favor is deceitful because it can end as quickly as it began. Beauty is vain. But a woman that fears the Lord, she shall be praised. What is the basis for a good marriage between two people? Compatibility. I love him. He's a greaser. He's hip. He's cool. He he drives a Harley. What's the basis for marriage? The fear of God. Do you know why? Because God is going to say to the husband, get compatible. He's going to say to the wife, get compatible. And we do that every day of our lives, don't we? I can just look at some of you couples and realize, oh, what did they go through in the first three years of their marriage? Some came from a cultured, considerate, careful background, and some of you are uncouth. I mean, how did you get along for the first three years? Some of you are gabbers, great communicators, and some of you are clams. How did you get along for the first few years? You learn to adjust, and it was painful, wasn't it? Do you know why it was painful? Because we, in so many cases, didn't have parents that helped us, nor did we have pastors that taught us, nor did we have churches that would bear with us and help us while we were making those adjustments and reminding us you need to do it, men. You need to do it, women. Because it's work. It's a lifelong task to be compatible. What compatibility do you want to measure when you look at two young people about to get married? They both like to bowl. Is that going to help their marriage? They both want a vacation in Utah. Is that going to help their marriage? What? How do you want to measure compatibility? You want to measure it by age? Is age all that important? Would somebody in this congregation, if they have the book written by Mrs. Strom Thurman, would you loan it to me? I've heard so much about that couple, but I believe she's written a book about her marriage that I have not read yet. How old was she when she was married? Somewhere in mid-twenties. How old was Strom Thurmond? Forty-one years older. Are they happily married today? Has she written a book about how happily they're married? Age. Is age very important? Not if the two people fear God. How do you want to measure it? Food preferences, parental training, their ideas on how they're going to raise their kids. You can't find me two young people that know squat about how they're going to raise their kids. They don't know yet. They haven't been there yet. I've heard so many young, young married couples before they had kids talk about what kind of parents they were going to be. And as soon as the kids came along, you realize the bowels are a lot stronger than the mind. <laughs> I've seen that so many times. <laughs> don't. Don't tell me two kids can sit down and talk about how they're going to raise their kids and find compatibility, unless there is a cure. The one issue they talk about is, do you fear God and love His Word? And they're going to be compatible on the issue of child training because the Bible's going to dictate to both of them how they're going to behave. How many of you talked about whether you'd leave your dirty clothes in the middle of the the bedroom floor or not before you got married? Isn't that an issue that bothers many of us? And you don't know whether it's my wife that bothers me or me that bothers my wife. Those are issues that we have to adjust as we get married. But how many kids go on dates to Six Flags and talk about where do you leave your dirty clothes? They don't. Parents need to be thinking about some things like that. And instilling in their children that your marriage will work if you submit to the Word of God. How much compatibility did you choose with your parents? Now, let's just think about it for a minute. You know, it's a rage today. You've got to be compatible to have a good marriage. You've got to be compatible before you get married. Incompatibility is a great ground for divorce. Let's think about that for a few minutes in the other relationships. How much compatibility did you prove out before you were born to your parents? Did you like their temperament before you were born? Did you agree that your temperament would fit well with theirs? And that their ideas on parent- on child training would fit well with your ambitions as a child? God never asked. Right. Do you know what God said? Children, obey your parents. He doesn't care if you're compatible or not. How about dads? Some dads might have an IQ of 140 and God gives them a child with an IQ of 80. Some dads may have an IQ of 80 and they're given children with an IQ of 140. Why does God do that? To test those fathers if they'll keep his commandments. Train your children the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Be not angry against them nor discourage them. He makes differences, and he doesn't ask you whether you'd like them or not. There were plenty of differences between my father and myself, temperamentally. Did that give me any leave to disobey him? God didn't care. How much compatibility do you men have with your masters? You love your masters? Charlie laughed because his master was Stuart Crane for 10 years for those of you who know Stuart Crane I know you'll be embra- you'll be embracing Charlie after the service how compatible are you with your masters God puts you into an employee situation with an employer many times we can't stand the man every, almost every decision he makes you're grinding underneath it because you'd like to make it differently you don't think he knows what he's talking about what he's doing The way he treats you is not the way you would treat your employees. But does God care? Serve your masters well, whether you're compatible with them or not. You compatible with our government? I can't stand many of the things our government does. Does that give me any grounds for civil disobedience? No. And the last one, what compatibility do you have with your pastor? Say, I can't stand your temperament. Can't stand your personality. Does that give you grounds not to listen to the preaching and not to obey? God brings people together, and he doesn't care about their compatibility. And do you know know what I want to tell you now? God is really looking for relationships based on incompatibility because that's the only place you can prove your mettle. Remember that passage that I've used so many times, I've worn it thin, I can't, page is probably gone, from my Bible, 1 Peter chapter 2, where it says that obeying forward masters, the masters, the employers that really get on your nerves, when you obey them, that's behavior that God loves. And when we marry someone that we're incompatible with, that's where God's really looking for us to keep His commandments. So far from being an excuse for less effort into the marriage, incompatibility means greater effort and greater blessing from God. You want to help your kids with a greater blessing? Find the most incompatible person you can and help them get married. It'd be just as wise as looking for compatibility. Because when it, what it comes down to is, do you fear God and want to obey His Word? Two Christians that truly fear God can have a great marriage though they're incompatible. That's the bottom line. Two Christians that truly fear God can have a great marriage even if they're incompatible. The fear of God is far more important than any social measure. The fear of God is far more important than two people working out any point before they're married. And because of the nature of the situation, they can't work out most until they're in it. Then you realize... What personal hygiene habits your partner has, and you go, oh, things like that happen. You know, the woman who takes two showers a day marries the man who takes one a week, whether he needs it or not. <laughs> things like that, that's life. That is life. You can't know until you're in it. How many of you asked before you got married? So you weren't marrying on compatibility well, I could tell. It hadn't been a week. Two Christians that truly fear God can have a great marriage even though they may be incompatible if they truly fear God and are willing to adjust and love and serve one another as God has commanded us to do. You add to that. You give me two people that are incompatible, 20 years age difference, One's from a cultured, refined, wealthy background. One's from a poor, sloppy background. One has a master's degree over here. This one quit in the eighth grade. One's handsome. One's ugly. Think of anything you can think of. Give me the fear of God on both parties. Add to that sound teaching from a pastor. Add to that concerned pastor... Add to that brethren that love them both, and I'll show you two people that can make it and can make it great. Far better than two people lined up and picked by computer for their compatibility where there is no fear of God. Because the minute you begin to rely on compatibility, your marriage will fail. Your marriage is based on the Word of God that God has commanded husbands to treat their wives in a certain way and wives their husbands. Younger marriages have the advantage of developing that compatibility before habits are established. When the Bible speaks of, live joyfully with the wife of thy youth, when you're in your youth, you have not finally established many of your patterns of behavior. And there is that additional advantage to two people coming together, not when they're 30, but when they're younger. You say, but when they're 30, they know better. When they're 30, they have established patterns of behavior that they don't when they're in their late teens, not nearly as much. Two myths of marriage. Is your marriage on the rocks because you don't love each other anymore? Brethren, I'm being practical. I'm trying to be your father, your pastor, your teacher. Is your marriage suffering because you don't love each other like you used to? Invest and make your spouse your treasure. The feelings will come. God doesn't let you off the hook in your marital duties because you don't have the feelings Feelings are not a basis for marriage. Feelings must always be subordinate to proper action. Second myth, compatibility is a joke. Sinners, we are. Compatibility, we are not. If we fear God, we will make the necessary adjustments to get along grandly with our wives and with our husbands. May God bless us in this church to have revived feelings and love in our marriages and may God bless us to see what true compatibility is and how we achieve it and that's through putting into practice what was contained in the first five messages on how husbands and wives are to treat one another. Holy Father we adore Thee O Lord we thank Thee that we have assurance that Jesus Christ is ours And, O Lord, we lift up our voices to praise Thee and to thank Thee for Thy mercy toward us that is found in Him. And, O Lord, visions of rapturous delight do burst on our sight as we look at those things which are not seen rather than the things that are seen. We thank Thee for Thy glorious Word. We are here assembled together in one place to hear all things commanded us of Thee. Bless us, O Lord, to hear, to understand, to remember, and to do the things that we hear. Forgive us where we have not done what we have heard. Forgive us where we have failed in the past. Forgive us, O Lord, for our bent to sinning and the sinfulness that rages within our hearts. Lord, give us understanding now. I thank Thee for Thy Word. I love it exceedingly, O Lord. It is so sweet to the taste and of so much more value than any gold in this world. Teach Thy servant Thy commandments, O Lord, that I might keep them and teach them in turn to this congregation. I thank Thee for Thy Word. Guide us through its pages now and bless us to improve our marriages and to prepare our children for better marriages than we have had by blessing us in this study through Jesus Christ and by Thy Spirit. Amen.